At the outset of his book, uh, David's Crown, uh, a character that we know, a familiar figure uh, who was here just a few weeks ago, Malcolm Geith, confesses this. He writes, the experience of crisis and darkness of living through the coronavirus pandemic has brought my reading of scripture to life and especially my engagement with the Psalter. And Guy goes on to observe this. He says, all these passages in the Psalms, which we may have recited almost absent-mindedly in happier years, have become once more what they were always intended to be, the direct speech of the heart. So my hope this summer for us is that as we go through the first part of the summer on a series that's in the Psalms, which we began last week uh, with Kevin, appreciate uh, his words sharing last week, uh, but as we continue today, as we go through this series on the Psalms, that this would become for us, these words in what we're calling volume two of the summer playlist uh, would be for us, that this would be speech that comes directly from our hearts. That these things that we hear, that we uh, ponder, that we consider, uh, that these would populate our imagination, and at another level, they would fill our prayers. The psalm book does that for us. It fills in the gaps. Those places where we don't have words to pray because we're out of juice. We don't have the words to say because the experience of the moment is too great that our mouths are shut or our hearts are so broken and tired that we lay there in exhaustion. The psalms become words for us and that's the way they serve as a direct speech of our heart. That's my hope this summer, that these words would be that. And so today we turn our attention to Psalm 44. And as we do so, I'm reminded of a date in personal history, which is a day of infamy. May 7th, 1994 was a troubling day. I'm not sure I've ever felt more sick to that point in my life, more anguished, more sad, more confused than I did on that day. In fact, my college friends, I was in college at the time, when they heard the news, they expressed concern and offered their condolences. I had to change my plans for the coming weeks because of the way that I felt. It left me a lot of time to think, a lot of time to think how on earth could a number eight seed Denver Nuggets beat my number one seed Seattle Supersonics in the first round of the playoffs after we were up 2-0. How does that happen? Like I said, pure anguish. Of course, this is a silly example. We know life can deliver far more troubling experiences, far more difficult places, things that are far more serious and significant than a sporting event. Maybe not more significant, but on same par. And when what is going on in the present looks like something that's far less than a gift in our lives. See what I did there? Present, gift, got it, no? Nobody, anybody? Just make, making sure we're all paying attention. You gotta have a dad's joke on Father's Day, right? Doesn't look like a gift. What do we do? Well, oftentimes, the popular choice is to escape, to run away. Popular destination for us is the past. We retreat to the past. Sometimes we go to the future, but most of the time we head to the past. There we find that nostalgia serves as a powerful sedative to navigating the present woes of life. We'll let that woe go by. In an article entitled, The Science Behind Nostalgia and Why We're So Obsessed with the Past, the author, Lauren Martin, uh, observes this. She says, the past is 
always distorted, always yearned for it, always seen as better days. It keeps us from the truth of the present and the pain of reality. It's seen as something beautiful, something irrevocable, and somewhere that will always be better than we, where we are now. And Martin goes on to observe that what you may have already known, that this remembered past for us is oftentimes idealized. It's not the real story. It's a, it's a sort of glamorous version of the story, but we, we, re, we retreat back to that place. And we imagine that that's the way life is supposed to always be. So it may seem that our psalmist here, right from the get-go of Psalm 44, is attempting to apply nostalgia to their real woes. When they start to take, talk about the past, we might think, oh yeah, they're just going back to that, that golden age, going back to that time when things were, were better. And they might be retreating to a time when it seemed like God was more actively present in the life of God's people, that God was more supportive back then, that victory was regular and certain, that God's presence and favor was more obviously felt. And why not? Those past tales that they had heard from their ancestors are described as a time when an enslaved people planted or were planted and set free, according to verse 2, that they were shown favor by God in verse 3, that the events of the past were not only God-inspired, but really they were God-given victory, that God was more actively present in that victory and conquest of foes that we see in verse 4, that God took direct action. And of course, their grateful response from the past. You think about those stories that came through, this psalm for one being written, but even the tales that are shared, that that older generation told stories of how great it was back then, how God was so involved at that point. And the psalmist's own generation in verse 8 is seen here as boasting in God and giving thanks that they are a grateful people. But this isn't nostalgia. These stories of the past aren't reaching back to some kind of phony past, not some sort of imagined past. But rather what's happening is the psalmist isn't appealing to some kind of idealized past, but rather pointing to places, specific places, where God took direct action on behalf of God's people. And from there the psalmist is saying, do it again, please, do it again, in this present moment, do it again. But before we look at the urgency here, we're gonna turn in a moment here to the urgency of the psalmist ask in their present circumstances, there's a need for us to pause as moderns here before we go too far in this story. The talk of violence that fills this psalm, particularly violence that's ascribed to God and victory that comes at God's hand against foes, clearing the land, that alone should cause us to pause. If I turn back to Malcolm Guide for a moment, he himself in his book, actually in reflection of this psalm, he'll actually have a pause that he interjects at this moment. He writes, how could it ever be God's holy will to raise an army to inflict harm, the special horror of a holy war? How could we ever conquer in his name? So even Geit knows that there's a pause that needs to happen here. Knowing the violence that regularly unfolds around the globe, both in the past, but even today, in our own communities, and even in our own backstory. Violence that attempts to lay claim to land and resources. Pausing here is appropriate. 
for us to stop and be careful, lest we somehow manufacture misplaced divine justification for our own misdeeds and our own insatiable need to conquer and possess. The sila that we see there between verses 8 and 9, this kind of marker that serves as a pause in the psalm, it's, we're not quite sure what those are. We think they're a, some sort of notation in the music itself to draw a pause as, as that's being performed. But the sila itself, where it is, affords us such a pause, no matter what reason it's there for. Because there's going to be a shift here in the psalm between these verses. A number of years ago, I was part of a group that was replacing the roof on a house in Puerto Rico. And our job was, over the course of the week, was to clean the roof off and then apply a coating to it that was supposed to make it protected uh, from the, the rainfall that they would have there in their wet seasons. And the homeowner's dog was sitting there tethered in the front yard all week on a rope right there in front of the house and daily watched us go about our work. Seemed like a friendly dog, even wagging its tail when it would see us, kind of a joyful dog response. So I didn't think twice when I reached out to pet it one day and almost lost my hand. Without warning, the dog exploded into a flurry of growls and snaps and barks from tail wagging to man killer in just a moment. The previous moment's calm was gone in an instant. This psalm here has a move between verses 8 and 9 that's like that dog. Seems like the mood's all great. If you want to fill in an Eminem song right now, you can. The mood all changed. All right? It all changed at that moment right there. This psalm shifts quickly like that dog did. All is good in verses 1 through 8. We're talking about the good old days. But then the teeth come out in verse 9, almost without warning. And to borrow the title to an old Frank Peretti novel. Does anybody know who Frank Peretti is here? Any yes. Frank Peretti folks here? Don't read it late at night, right? Is that what's going on? Whatever golden age was being drawn on those past stories is now replaced by this present darkness. That's right. The present darkness of the age, the woes that come here. Whatever favor God's people experienced previously is now replaced. It's replaced by rejection and shame, by defeat after defeat. And we read of that in those passages, those, those verses, those defeats coming militarily and otherwise. And this is real suffering. We should look past the fact that this is real suffering, which the author identifies with stinging imagery in verse 11. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. That is not a good picture. That's a horrible picture. You've made us like sheep for slaughter. And it's stinging all the more as God's people had imagined themselves, and we see this throughout the scriptures, particularly in the prophets, as a flock under God's care. That that's how they imagine themselves as a people. But the psalmist will draw on this sheep slaughter imagery again in verse 22. So we see it in verse 11, we see it again in verse 22, but this time attached to it is these words, because of you, because of you. In other words, they're interpreting, the psalmist here is interpreting their suffering is a direct result of his identification with God. Not because of some kind of judgment or divine judgment that would come. That's not where they see this coming from. The psalmist will actually question whether or not it's justified in verses 17 through 21. So hearkening back to that direct speech from the heart. This psalm is one you might pray when your present circumstances don't line up with your expectations for how God has acted in the past. 
If you've got a picture in your mind this morning of a golden era of spirituality, a golden age in your life when faith was so certain and sure, and you find yourself today, whether it's pandemic related or just life in a Western country, asking questions so profound and deep that you're asking whether it's even worth it anymore, if God is even present in my life, if God even cares, you're asking the same questions the psalmist is asking at this very moment. And like I said from the very beginning, my hope is that these words from the psalm will be ones that become direct speech from our own hearts. Places where we might reach back and say, I've run out of vocabulary and sentences. I don't have the right syntax to be able to adequately communicate the way that I'm feeling, but I'm certainly feeling something and it's disruptive. Psalm 44 becomes your prayer for the next week, the next month, the next season, and to use it as such. But let's see where the psalmist goes with all this. Where does the psalmist end up? We don't want to just be left there, right? We don't want to be stranded in no man's land. Who wants to be stranded in no man's land this morning? There's one hand. All right, you're in the right. The blanket section is the right place to be in no man's land. On a couple occasions in my life, and I, I feel like this is a part that uh, I know I know we've been together for two years in this call, and this might be one of those things that as I admit it, you might want to reconsider the call of this pastor. <laughs> but on a couple of occasions, I've attended presentations by a group called the Power Team. Wow. You ever heard of the Power Team? John Jacobson, the Power Team. Has anybody heard of the Power Team? Bunch of like uh, weightlifter guys, big dudes, <laughs> who uh, go and break things. They handcuff themselves and they break the handcuffs off. They break bats and concrete and ice and all kinds of stuff. Kind of hulking giants, folks. And of course, these various feats of strength are joined with a kind of gospel presentation. That intersects with them. If you notice what I did there with that sentence, a kind of gospel presentation. Connected with what you just witnessed. But amongst the hulking figures, there's always a, there's always a figure that's not quite as stout and big as the other characters. He's not there to break things. He's not there to tear through phone books or blow up hot water bottles like they're balloons. But rather, he's what we might just call the voice. And not like the television singing competition, but he's just a voice on a microphone. And he has a very distinct voice, and he always yells this to ignite the crowd. Help him! Help him! He's just shouting like that with a shrieking voice. It's very strange that someone could keep that up for an hour. I think I just shot my voice after just those two lines. But they're yelling, help him, over and over and over again. And that's kind of the tone of the psalmist here at this point, the role that they take, asking for God to take a similar role here to help, help us in this moment, this desperation. And you see in verse 23 that the words that are used here are as though God were asleep, that God's sleeping on the job says, rouse yourself, awake, verse 26, rise up and come to our help, each one sounding more and more like a desperate appeal in that time of trouble, and perhaps our own appeal to God, that God would not slumber but would wake up. There's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah's on Mount Carmel, and he taunts the prophets of Baal, right? He says, maybe your God's sleeping, right? Maybe God's, your God is asleep this moment. But that doesn't sound like the, the God of the Jewish and Christian people. We don't have a sleeping God, do we? Well, if you go to the Gospels, there's a story where Jesus is sleeping in a boat during a storm. And as those waters are swamping the boat he and, that he and his disciples are in, 
the disciples go into a frenzy and their anxiety is at a fever pitch. If you remember that story, they too, like the psalmist, are wondering why Jesus can sleep during this. Why are you asleep, Jesus? How come you fail to take notice? They say in Mark chapter 4, verse 38, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Right? Do you not care? Come on, man, wake up! Help us! Right? They're going crazy. They say we need help. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus was well aware of their predicament. That Jesus was the only one on that boat who would actually answer that call to help. Salvation was closer than they realized. And what comes of the story is that even in the midst of their fear and their, their present woes, the story ends with a lesson in faith and a lesson in trust. Those early disciples made an appeal to the one who indeed cares and who indeed can and does take action, just as the psalmist will appeal. Not an escape to the past or even to an odd sort of future, but to the one that we read at the very end of the psalm who can redeem because of his steadfast love. That's covenant language. That's covenant language. The one who promised to be faithful through all and who has indeed been faithful. I want to close this morning with just a weird story. You haven't heard enough weird stories this morning. Here's another one. This is one of those weird mystical kind of stories that happen in life. And if you don't mark them, sometimes you can miss them. A couple years ago, I had planned to go uh, to a presentation uh, down in Waco, Texas. That's not the weird part of the story. All right, so let say that ahead of time. But I planned to go to a presentation in Waco, Texas, and it was going to be with N.T. Wright. I was uh, planning the sermon series that winter for the fall, the coming fall, and I de determined that a good course for us as a congregation would be to study the book of Galatians. And then I found out that N.T. Wright would be in Waco, Texas, and would be presenting on Galatians for one week. And then he was uh, releasing a new commentary. I thought, perfect, just in time to start the preparation for that series. Well, because of COVID, it got canceled. He couldn't get out of the UK, and so they canceled the event. And they rescheduled it for this year. They said, we're going to do it again, but we're not going to do Galatians this year. Uh, we're going to do a different passage. And so I signed up. I want to see N.T. Wright, whatever he's talking about. He could be talking about poodles. I was going to go see him. <laughs> right, we're going to get this done. And so I signed up to go, and the presentation all week uh, was on Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And it's like, wow, Romans 8, Jimmy, that's great. You went to a week-long seminar on one chapter of the Bible. Imagine spending, you know, 90-minute sessions on four verses each. That's what this was. It was incredible. What a fantastic experience. But that's not the weird part of the story. Here's the weird part of the story. If you look through the Bible, oftentimes when I do a study of Old Testament Scripture, I'm always curious about how it's used in the New Testament. I asked myself, hey, where's this, where's this usage there? Because it tells us how that early Christian community, how they were interpreting those Old Testament passages and how they were utilizing them to breathe fresh life into the church and to better understand what God was up to. And sure enough, Psalm 44 is quoted in the New Testament. Not just a reference, but quoted. And would you believe that it is quoted in none, it quotes none other than Psalm 44. Psalm 44 shows up in Romans chapter 8 at the very end of that great chapter. Remember that. Talk about A lot of times you'll see high school athletes or someone will use this type of verse. They'll talk about uh, how uh, we're conquerors and how God loves us. And they'll use all these, these different assurances. But right between that sandwich, 
you're not familiar with Romans 8, being in verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us, right? That's the classic, like, yeah, I can do all things here. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with, how will he, yeah, excuse me there, how will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, or rather, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of sword, right? These are all phrases being said to an audience that's facing great difficulty in the present. These are being said to an audience that's facing great woes. And Paul writes, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's memory and imagination at this point is an imagination that holds in it that prayer from Psalm 44, that it holds that text, that promise for people here, for each one of us. And he goes on with that in his imagination, with the psalmist's words and prayer in his heart. Know in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those words in the New Testament echo words from the Old Testament. Words that the one who is faithful will continue to be faithful. And so the appeal is not to my own story. The appeal is not to my own imagined past. The appeal is not to perhaps a hopeful future that I might manufacture artificially, but rather our hope is in the one who has been faithful because of the covenant that was established by the faithful God. Our hope is in the one who in Jesus Christ is faithful in all things, that we too with the psalmist, although we live in anguish now, we can see a hope-filled future because of the faith of the one who loves us. Maybe so for our own generation and every day of our lives. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's pray together.